0: Uh, in case you don't know where Malachi is, go to Matthew, turn back one. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi was the final prophet to speak before John the Baptist arrived on the scene. We're going to be looking at Malachi over the next five weeks. <laughs> tough love. You ever heard that phrase, tough love? It sounds horrible. It, doesn't, it sounds like a contradiction in terms. Tough love. It's, it's hard when, when you're giving tough love, it's terrible when you're on the receiving end of tough love. Or loving discipline. Oh, that just has a horrible sound to it, doesn't it? Loving discipline. Discipline never feels like love. Even the writer of the Hebrews acknowledged this. He had to concede the point. He said, No discipline for the moment seems to be joyful, it's sorrowful. Let's not pretend otherwise, it's painful. I had to discipline my kids once. And, uh, you know, not surprisingly, when I disciplined them, they didn't run into my arms with hugs and kisses and say, oh, Dad, thank you for this painful reminder of your love for us. So, you know, that, no, probably what was running through their minds was, Dad, you don't love me. If you love me, you wouldn't be doing this to me. They, they probably doubted my love in that moment. You know, the same goes true for us. When we are, are struggling or suffering, whether it's part of just life in a fallen world or consequences of the decisions we've made or discipline from God, no matter what it is, we tend to doubt that God loves us. In the book of Malachi, God opens up with this declaration. He says to his people, I love you. And they say, we don't think so. We doubt, in fact, God, that you love us. I want you to read with me, beginning Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, the first five verses. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. God said, I love you. And Israel said, we don't think so. They doubted God's love because they were suffering. We doubt God's love. Why? Well, as we look through the book of Malachi, we're going to see several reasons why Israel's love for God had grown cold. And they question God's love toward them. Just like us, God's people often doubt his love first when our expectations are unfulfilled. When God does not come through for us like we expect God to come through for us. The Israelites were struggling with unfulfilled expectations. They had come into the promised land and they thought that they would receive material blessings. Instead of material blessings, they are struggling. And they wonder, they say, God, do you in fact love us? You know, I I have discovered that expectations are funny things. We all have them, but we often don't know that we have them until they go unfulfilled. And then they just leap out at us and and we wrestle with what we think life should have brought us and what we deserve or what God should bring us. Remember before I got married, I had an expectation. I expected that people got married and they made a decision and then nine months later they had kids. I mean, that's just this is how things work, right? You make a decision as a married couple and then there it is, nine months later, you have your child. That's how it works. But when we got married, we made a decision and nothing happened for year after year after year after year. And we had to wrestle with this expectation that was completely unfulfilled. We had to wrestle through What was God in fact doing and what was he thinking at this moment in our lives? You know, as a single person, I mean, for those of you who've wrestled with infertility, it probably sounds crazy. It did to me at this point in time. Now I look back and go, well, I should have thought about the fact that infertility is actually a real thing. You know, there are people in the Bible like Sarah. (laughs) She didn't immediately get pregnant. There's a biblical character, Rebecca, Hannah later on. But I just never thought that's Old Testament. That's thousands of years ago. It's not a present reality. And so we wrestled through that expectation. After having kids, particularly after we had our second kid, my wife had to struggle with an expectation. She expected that kids raised in Christians' homes never fought with one another. <laughs> so we're still kind of working through that whole deal. But we have expectations. And Israel had expectations. Malachi wrote when... These people were expecting something from God, and it didn't happen. I want to put it in context for you a little bit, give you the history of where we are when Malachi wrote. Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC. The Babylonians came in and destroyed the city, but that was not the first time the Babylonians had attacked. They actually attacked in 605 BC, 597 BC. Then in 586, they finally came in, leveled the temple, and leveled the city, and took off a third wave of exiles into Babylon miraculously, in 538, they were allowed to return. Cyrus, king King of Persia, issued a decree that any Jew who wanted to could go back to the nation of Israel and help rebuild the temple and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the land. You can read his decree at the very end of 2 Chronicles or the first chapter of Ezra. It was the fulfillment of a promise. And they had incredibly high expectations about what they would experience when they went back to the quote-unquote promised land. Well, they went back and they laid the foundation of the temple and then they became discouraged. They were being attacked by the people of the land. They were being threatened constantly. After laying the foundation, some of them remembered what the temple used to look like and they could see, no, we don't have the resources, we don't have the power, we don't have the strength to make anything like what Solomon made and they became apathetic. And so they completely stopped building. Then Haggai and Zechariah showed up on the scene and they stirred up the people. They stirred up the spirit of the people by the spirit of the Lord and said, build, build, build. The people got together again and they resumed work. 520 BC, about five years later, they completed the temple. And then a generation later, Nehemiah led a third wave of Israelites. Back to the land so that they could rebuild the walls of the city. The temple had been made. It was kind of a shadow of its former temple. But there was a temple, but the city was in ruins. And Nehemiah led a group back. Again, miraculously, a pagan king, Artaxerxes, for whom Nehemiah worked, allowed Nehemiah to go back and resource Nehemiah. He said, take, take the utensils that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from your temple. Take those back. Take resources from the treasury. Get wood. We will help you rebuild these walls. So the people rebuilt. Nehemiah eventually returned to Persia. During that period of time, the Jewish society just went into decay. Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem to address these problems again, 430 BC. And sometime in this range, 430 to 420, is when Malachi prophesied. And what he is addressing is the people's love for God that has grown cold Because they assume that God no longer loves them. Why? Because things are not turning out as they expected. And essentially what they are saying is, God, if you won't come through for us, then we're not going to come through for you. They, They didn't drift back into idolatry, but they didn't give their hearts fully to the Lord. They were just going through the motions of worship. They were worshipers of Yahweh, but they didn't really love the Lord. Have you ever struggled with expectations that have gone unfulfilled? It may maybe something physical or material or financial? Maybe a degree of health or a type of success, or it may be a relationship that you want to begin or you want to grow or you want to be fixed, something that you expect from life, from God. And when that doesn't happen, where do you go? Do you look at your circumstances, do you look at your surroundings and immediately assume, no, God must not love me because things are not turning out as I had planned? Do you allow Satan to cause your love for God to grow cold? Or do you go deep into God and look deep for his character, his faithfulness and his loyalty and his love for you in spite of the fact that things are not turning out as you had expected? See, one of the ways that Satan tests us is through these trying circumstances. One of the ways that God builds our character and our love for him is through unfulfilled expectations. Will that allow our love to grow cold or will we go deeper with the Lord? Second reason that God's people doubt his love is when we overlook our own responsibility. We overlook our own responsibility for the circumstances that we're living in. The name Malachi means literally uh, my messenger. Malachi was commissioned with an oracle, which in Hebrew is literally a burden. We've talked about this before. Prophets had a hard job. Malachi is the messenger of the Lord, and he is carrying a burden. It's something really heavy. And it is the fact that God is displeased with his people because they are not reciprocating his deep and genuine love for them. But I want you to notice one thing. This is a burden or an oracle that is to, not against God's people. It is to God's people. It is not against God's people. He, he starts with this. I love you. I love you. I love you. And the reason you're not experiencing my love and enjoying my love is because you don't trust me. But I love you. The reason you're not enjoying the experience of my love is because you're not looking at yourselves clearly and looking at yourselves accurately. And that's exactly what happens with us. When we are not honest about ourselves, we cannot see God clearly. I encourage you to go back and read uh, Ezra and Nehemiah over the next several weeks. It'll give you some good context for what we're going to talk about. In Nehemiah chapter 10, the Jews made several promises. Because things were out of whack in their society and their culture. They made promises regarding marriage, Sabbath, and worship. They had entered into marriages with the people of the land, and as a result, their hearts have been pulled astray. Like I said, it it was not uh, that they went back into idolatry with these foreign marriages, but their hearts were divided. Uh, they were not honoring the Sabbath. They weren't setting aside a time to say, no, let us think about our world from God's point of view. Let us remind ourselves that God is at work and so we can rest. No, instead they regarded the Sabbath as any other day. They worked in their fields. They went through their, their commercial uh, practices. They didn't honor the Sabbath. They did not provide for worship. The temple was in disarray. There were no finances provided so that the people could come and worship. They weren't bringing their sacrifices. And so they made promises. They said, you know, we're gonna, we are going to... Align our lives with God and His priorities. But by the time you read Nehemiah chapter 13, they have broken each of these promises. So Nehemiah returned and Malachi prophesied and he addressed these exact same promises worship, which included Sabbath and marriage. In particular, it would seem that what was happening was that the Jews were divorcing their Jewish wives for any reason whatsoever probably so that they could enter into these marriages with foreign women. And let me just say, the fundamental problem was not a marriage between two races, but a divided heart. Today, it's not a sin for two people to marry who are from different races. We don't live under the law. It's not a sin. In fact, there's only one prescription that we're told for marriage of a Christian. What is it? marry another Christian. right? You're free to marry, Paul says, but only do so in the Lord. That means marry another believer. If you're a college student, let me encourage you that wisdom would say, push that a little further and marry a Christian who deeply and genuinely loves Jesus Christ and wants to put Christ at the center of his or her life. Marry someone who wants to run hard after God for a lifetime so that you've got a companion in this race. But again, the point is not What is the race of the other person but the heart? I would argue even in the Old Testament, fundamentally, the issue was not race. Because if you look at the genealogy of Jesus, we actually find some non-Jewish women, don't we? We find Rahab, resident of Jericho, quite well known. She was a prostitute. And we find Ruth, who was not a Jew, but a Moabitess. In the lineage of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The reason that those ladies wind up in the lineage of Jesus Christ is because they turned their backs on all false foreign gods and they fell in love with the one true God, Yahweh. And that's the fundamental issue. And so Malachi is addressing a people who are living in sin. They are not loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, but they are not willing to admit this truth about themselves. Again, this is the fundamental principle. We cannot see God clearly if we don't look at ourselves honestly. So they are seeing themselves as victims and they are blaming God for their circumstances. They are shifting all of the blame to God. Now I will tell you, I understand this practice of shifting the blame to somebody else because I was uh, the youngest in my family. And the youngest in the family often become pretty artful at that. I had an older sister, and my parents would frequently leave us alone uh, at, at home. Uh, you don't need to call CPS. She was old enough to babysit me, and they'd go out on a date, and she would be responsible. Which meant I could get away with a lot more, because they could come home, and I'd go, i go, I'm, I'm just a kid. I don't know. You know, she's responsible. It didn't always work, but sometimes it did work, and it was a wonderful thing just to shove the responsibility off onto my sister when I broke something accidentally. Well, she should have been paying attention to my reckless behavior, right? You know, I understand that, okay? That's just a fundamental part of human nature, especially uh, the youngest child learns how to do that. I read a great story a few years ago. It's about a woman in Ontario. She got drunk at an office party, left the office party, went out and wrecked her car. Then she sued her employer. Okay, she sued her employer for damages. Now, the amazing thing about this story is that her employer offered to get her a cab and pay for it or put her up in a hotel room if she would just surrender her keys. She refused to surrender her keys, got in her car, wrecked it, then sued her employer, and she won $300,000 in damages. Isn't that amazing? I just, <laughs> wow. I read another story about a student at the University of Idaho. Uh, he was in his dorm room, and uh, he leaned up against the window of his dorm room and obscenely gestured. Passers-by, as they, as they went by, leaning against his window of his dorm room. And the window broke and he fell out and injured himself. Right? So he sued the University of Idaho. Because they should have obviously posted signs, you know, don't moon passers-by or whatever, I don't know, you know. Or just, you know, weak windows, not substantial enough for mooning or whatever. I don't know. But I mean, you know, so he sued. Now fortunately, he did not win. That would have been very disillusioning if he had won that lawsuit but it does reveal something fundamental about human behavior we really don't want to take responsibility for our own screw ups Adam said to God the woman that you God gave me she gave me the fruit and I ate he's pushing it away but we cannot see God clearly if we do not look at ourselves honestly. See, confession is, is a little like God taking the glasses off of our face. The glasses are smudged and they're dirty because of our own sin. And they're coloring the way that we see ourselves and consequently the way that we see God. Confession is like God taking them off of our face and he rubs them clean. He cleans them off. We put the glasses back on and we look in the mirror and we see ourselves clearly. And we take responsibility And then we see God clearly. And we're reminded, no, in spite of our circumstances, God genuinely and deeply loves us. He is unfailing in his love. But when we overlook our own responsibility, we doubt his love. Third, God's people doubt his love when we overlook the evidence of his love. I want you to read with me again Malachi chapter 1. Beginning in verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. God demonstrates his love for us through his gracious choice. Now, this phrase is a little bit challenging to understand and interpret. God says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What does he mean? Does he mean that he has fond affection for Jacob, but he really dislikes and has antipathy toward Esau? No, that's not what it means. Love and hate can be emotional terms, but they're not always emotional terms. Let me illustrate. Jesus said in John 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What is Jesus saying? Is he saying you, you need to dislike your father and your mother? Dislike your wife, dislike your children, dislike your brothers, dislike your sisters. Don't even like yourself. Is that what he's saying? Is it, a, is it an emotional term? No. It is a matter of choice. Jesus is saying, put me above all things. Prioritize me above all things. Make a choice. Make a decision. That's what's happening when Jesus says this. In fact, we know that Jesus cared for, emotionally, his mother. As he's hanging on the cross, he looks down at John, his beloved disciple, and says, Behold, this is your mother. Please care for her. What Jesus is saying here is, make, make a choice. Make a decision. Put me above all that's what's happening as well in the book of Malachi. God is saying, I have chosen Jacob, and I've not chosen Esau. And it's not just that I've chosen Jacob as an individual. No, I've chosen Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because through them I will create a family that will become a nation, and through that nation I will bless all peoples, even the descendants of Esau. But I have chosen Jacob to be the channel of blessing. I've not chosen esau to be the channel of blessing but neither jacob nor esau were worthy to be the channel of blessing it was a matter of my gracious choice that demonstrates my love i want you to keep your place here in malachi and turn all the way back to genesis chapter 25 genesis chapter 25 is where this choice takes place 25, verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Not literally two nations are inside of you. That would have made for quite a childbirth, right? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying there are two babies, two boys, and nations will come from them, and I have chosen to bless all nations through the younger, and I have not chosen to bless all nations through the older. This is the basis of Paul's argument as well in Romans chapter 9. We often read Romans 9 and we think, This is all about the sovereignty of God. But it's not. What it's about, fundamentally, is about the faithfulness of God. In Romans chapter 9, the Jew is tempted to say, God, you have not been faithful to me. You have forgotten me. Because I and my people are outside of the realm of your blessing. We don't see very many Jews in the church. This mystery form of the kingdom. There are not a lot of Jews here. We are outside of your blessing. God, you must have broken your promises. Our expectations are not met. And God said, no, you wouldn't exist as a people if I hadn't chosen you, but you didn't deserve to be chosen. And you would no longer exist as a nation if it weren't that I came and rescued you out of slavery in Egypt. I have been faithful. I have demonstrated my love for you through my choice of you and through my preservation of you. Go back to Malachi with me, chapter 1. Again, reading verses 2 through 4. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. I have chosen him, but I have not chosen Esau. Instead, I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom, that is the descendants of Esau, Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. What's happening here? Well, there's an implicit comparison being made. When the Babylonians came in, they didn't just wipe out the Jewish nation and take Jews into exile, they also wiped out surrounding nations, including the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. When peoples were allowed to return, some Edomites were allowed to return. And they went back to their lands and they said, you know what, we will rebuild. God said, no, no, you won't. And so the Edomites always lived under foreign domination. And the Edomites eventually were absorbed by other peoples. And you cannot find an Edomite today. They have been subsumed under the Arab peoples. There's an implicit comparison here. God is saying to his people, you're still here. The Edomites are not, but you are still here. I have demonstrated my love for you. I have protected you. I have provided for you. For you and me, how do we know that God loves us? We are tempted to look at our circumstances. That's where our minds are, are, are most easily focused. We look at how well things are going for us. And on that basis, we decide, how much God loves us, or if God loves us, or we look at our lives in comparison to how it used to be, or we look at our lives in comparison to what we think others are experiencing, and on that basis, circumstantially, we evaluate God's love for us. How should we know that God loves us? Paul says in Romans 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his love toward us. Here's how. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jacob didn't deserve to be chosen. Esau didn't deserve to be chosen. We don't deserve to be chosen. We don't deserve to be blessed by God. And yet, while we were sinners, while we were enemies and alienated from God, running from God, God proves his love for us in that he gave us his son, Jesus. And we are tempted to look at our circumstances, and God says, No, look at the cross. Because I will fix all of your circumstances forever, but not yet. But right now, I can demonstrate my love for you by pointing you to the sacrifice that I made in giving you my son on the cross. This is the gospel message. It's grace, it's undeserved. It's undeserved favor and blessing from God. He says, believe in my son Jesus Christ and I remove the debt of your sin forever. I give you life that lasts forever. I give you the eternal reality of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a demonstration of my love for you. So where do you go? And circumstances are not working out as you had hoped they would. And you're tempted to say, God, how have you loved me? It seems that you have abandoned me. God is crying out to you through Malachi even this morning. I love you. I love you. Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you have demonstrated your unfailing love for us by giving us your son, Jesus Christ, who was willing to go to the cross and to suffer on our behalf as the most powerful and extravagant proof of your love to us. Father, we acknowledge that circumstances are fleeting, that this life is but a vapor, these are momentary and light afflictions compared to the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. I pray, Father, that you would lift our eyes, you'd lift our eyes off of the immediate struggles of life on this earth, and you'd point our attention to the enduring eternal reality of the cross of Christ. We give you thanks for him. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week and spend some time literally meditate on the gift of the cross. Have a great week.